Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me as always is my co-host, who spent some time in Tibet where he learned he always wanted to create a podcast, Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? I'm I'm great, and I'm apparently learning things about my backstory that I never knew before. What a journey I've been on. (laughs) Well, let's tackle this movie. What are we what are we watching today? Uh, So we just watched 1969's The Love Book, which is also known to people as the very first Herbie movie. All the subsequent Herbie movies have the word Herbie in them. But right. uh, this this is the very first one. Well, and I must say, this movie is was the best, biggest grossing movie in 1969. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. It, uh, it's something else. If you have a chance to watch this movie, you might, uh, and you're a, you still watch things on Blu-ray or DVD, um, there is a great little collection that Disney's put together of all four Herbie movies. And on that film, you have Dean Jones and Buddy Hackett doing a uh, commentary, and Michelle Lee joins them sometimes. It's absolutely great, and it's worth it. If you're a Herbie fan, I absolutely recommend that. So, it's great. Oh, that's very, very cool. Yeah, uh, I love i I enjoy director's commentary when they're good. A lot oh. of the time, a lot of the time, it's like, yeah, I directed this scene, and then I directed that scene, and there's no story. Uh, well, but, the, but this is a tells, good one. I'll watch it. Yeah, these two tell stories, and of course, Buddy Hackett's like, oh, did Herbie do that? <laughs> but they talk about the matte paintings, and they talk about the you know the people they knew, and Dean is particularly warm and fuzzy, and it's it's really really good. It's good. Did- did you get any good key facts from the from this uh, I commentary? Sort of, yeah, I sort of did. So some key facts to set the stage here for our discussion. The Love Bug's based on a book called Car Boy Girl by Gordon Buford. And Herbie got his name from a Buddy Hackett comedy routine. Uh, in his bit, in his comedy set, he talks about a girl who's a ski instructor who only dates guys named Herbie. And so they heard this, it would fall down hysterical, and they're like, that's the name of the car. And Herbie's number 53 in honor of one of producer Bill Walsh's favorite ballplayers, Don Drysdale. Oh, neat. Yeah. So the uh, original Herbie car was a 1963 Beetle model 117 Deluxe Sunroof sedan with the factory color Pearl Vice. Um, Dean Jones actually owns one of the cars, which is nice. Uh Hundreds of cars were used in filming the Herbie movies, but they were never referred to as Volkswagens in the first film. They're the Douglas Special, the little car, or the compact car. But by the time officials saw the film, Volkswagen was completely on board. Photos of their bugs with our car, the movie star captions happened in newspapers across the country with with lines like, incredible as it sounds, you are looking at the romantic lead of a big new Hollywood picture. Please, no autographs. Oh, hysterical. Very funny. Uh, So during the filming of The Love Bug, Buddy Hackett would fly to Las Vegas from L.A. on the weekends to keep his stand-up date at the Sahara. And he couldn't perform. He couldn't get there in time to perform, you know, at the 9 or 10 o'clock show. So he'd perform from 3 to 5 a.m. every Sunday and then fly back for work on The Love Bug for Monday morning. And he invites Dean Jones right after uh, New Year's Eve to come alongside him to sing for his shows. Because Dean is actually a singer. He was signed by MGM to be the singer before Disney Studios optioned him for their pictures. 
I kept waiting for there to be a song in this that he would sing. I know, I know. I think it's never happens. Nope, because he's a race car driver, not a singer, right? So producer and co-writer Bill Walsh became obsessed with Michelle Lee's fingernails when he was doing uh, this film. So Davy Cro- during well, they made Davy Crockett. He noticed that one of the pioneer women had these long red fingernails, and they had to reshoot a couple days worth of scenes because of it. And it was a lesson he never forgot. So he wanted to make certain Michelle's fingernails looked like a real mechanics. Wow. Uh, let's see here. Uh, uh, one more. Critics really panned the love bug and audiences loved it. Uh, on March 23rd, as a promotion for the movie, Disneyland hosted 80 semifinalist VWs for Love Bug Day to march I guess they marched right down Main Street in the Magic Kingdom to select the most lovable bug. Uh, The cars and presumably their owners competed in four categories, most psychedelic, most comical, most toy-like, and most personality. And the first prize was, well, what else? A 1969 Volkswagen. (laughs) Brilliant. I have to imagine that this became a marketing bonanza for Volkswagen. Oh, yeah. I still, to this day, when I when I see a, a Volkswagen bug, think of Herbie. It's oh, abs- absolutely. Well, linked they in were, my mind. When they were trying to figure out which car to cast as Herbie, they <clears throat> they lined up a bunch of different cars, but they kept petting the Volkswagen. Like, they would go up to the Volkswagen and kind of instinctively pet it, and they're like, this is the car. We keep touching it. <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. So that, that's how Herbie won his casting call. All right, I want to introduce our new semi-regular feature. Uh, this is racist roundup. Yeehaw! Um, I, sorry. Uh, if I had sound effects, uh, we would have like old West sound effects and and like cattle going through. Um, no. So so many of these movies have things that are range from borderline offensive to massively offensive, and the Love Bug is no exception. It is completely unnecessary. Uh, the stereotyping and racism that comes in this movie. Uh, but, but you know, I'm commenting on it, not because we want to talk about it, but because we want to acknowledge it. Uh, the stereo, the stereotypes that we see of, of individuals of Chinese descent within this, within this movie uh, is offensive. Um, I, I would say by 1969 standards, this is mild racism because, oh boy, if you've seen some other movies, it is over, like what the relative racism is over the top there. Right. But, it's, not a, it's not a Charlie Chan movie, right? But no, def- no. Definitely. But this is yeah. certainly uh, Michael Scott from The Office level racism. Right. Uh, like, like, these are the kind of racist jokes that Michael Scott would make where we would cringe while we would watch it. I want to acknowledge that. I want to acknowledge that there's no per- real reason any of that needs to be in this movie. Uh, and uh, say that, like, if that bothers you, we're with you. It bothered us also. Probably our least favorite part of this movie. Let's acknowledge that it's an issue. It's not something we would do in a modern screenplay today. Even at the relative low level of 1969 racism, this is unacceptable. Right. And we move on to the Manish Tana. Yes. Which is the question that we always ask at the beginning of our discussions of these movies. Why does this movie start where it starts? 
And Andy, I'll throw this question to you. We could start in oh, a boy. number of places. Yeah. Uh, uh, we begin with what appears to be like during the credits, we're watching a lot of cars race and crash into each other. Right. A demolition derby. Right. Yeah. Yes. And why is why is this our starting point? Well, Jim, you know, Jim's in a terrible spot. And the first time we see him, he's coming out of a car that he's just flipped. Um, the la- very last car he's got. And if you know even the, like the tiniest amount about racing, you know there are tiers of performance levels, right? There's demolition derbies uh, really are at the very bottom of that. Um, so you'll have like Formula One or Indy cars and maybe stock cars. and But he's really, really hit rock bottom. Um, I do not know the tiniest bit about racing. Okay. Um, so so this is news to me. But but what you just said makes sense. So like the lowest level is everyone's come not to enjoy the sport, but to enjoy the crashes. Right, exactly. And so his, it's, he, and in fact, he's so low, like he's a race car driver who has to get a ride home from the track, right? Yes. <laughs> because his car is jacked. He has no car. Um, he's at his lowest point. But we like him because he's proud, right? He wants, he asks Bice if he can have another shot at prize money, but it's not okay because he's washed up. And he says, Bice says to him, ain't you got no pride, right? But Jim does have pride, which is why we like him. Um, he, he won't take money he hasn't earned. Because right. when, and- when Bice asks him, do you need any money? The answer is nope. Right. And I, I think that's an important point here is we could be going home with any of these uh, drivers. Right. Right. But we have to follow the most interesting driver. If there's another if there's another person we could follow home who doesn't have his pride, doesn't have his flaws, per se, uh, we're not right. going to have an interesting movie. So, yes, we so like if you're like, oh, it's unrealistic that he wouldn't take the money. no. It's what makes it a good story. We're following the person who wants more, who has personal obstacles to overcome. I, I, right. I agree with you. It, it makes the case, the exposition in this movie makes the case for why Dean Jones must be our protagonist. There's also a bit of great foreshadowing where Bice says, you went a little and you think you're on your way, but it didn't work out, did it? And no. so, like, Jim's going to go on that same journey. Right. That's what he's been doing his whole life, where he starts winning and he thinks he's on his way and then something crashes for him. So I I want to talk about that a little more because this movie does something. We'll get to it when we get to his talking about about his character. Okay, Uh, sure. sure. let's, Let's focus right now on plot. So exposition, we learn this bit about Jim Douglas, played by Dean Jones. Uh we meet the the his best friend, his best human friend, uh, Tennessee, uh, played by Buddy Hackett. We see that circumstances are dire. The money is about to run out. He is in desperate need of a real car in order to launch his career again. He's wrecked all of the other cars. No one will give him another. Uh, so, So he is nearing his last attempt to salvage his career. So, Already, even before we get to the inciting incident, we see that the stakes are high for our protagonist uh, and that it doesn't seem to be heading in the right direction. There's no reason to think that one more car is going to be the thing that saves his career and allows him to take an upswing. But the brilliant part of this is Jim really thinks it is, right? 
Right. Uh, Jim really thinks that he, we, from the very get go, it's another car. It's another, the car is the thing that's going to save him. And Tennessee, his roommate, right, is concerned for him. Maybe Jim should get a job as a mechanic, right? And Jim keeps insisting, no, I'm a driver. And, but the beautiful part of that relationship, we know from the get go, even if they bicker, they have each other's backs. But, but I, what I also think you're, you're hinting at here is Jim is saying one more car Mm -hmm. the way that somebody else might say one more drink. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and I think Tennessee is recognizing, hey, Jim, Jim, you've got a problem. Yeah. It's not. And the problem is not going to be solved by a car. Of course, Tennessee is completely wrong. Um, (laughs) It it is going to be solved by a car. And in fact, I, I don't think we could possibly disagree on what the inciting incident of this movie is, Andy. Uh, what what would you say is the moment of the movie which will launch the rest of this movie? Well, I think when Jim uh, goes out in search of a car and he meets Carol Thorndike, he meets Carol and Thorndike and Herbie, and Jim stands up for the car. I mean, it's kind of a long inciting incident where Jim says, "You know, why don't you let the little car alone?" And Thorndike's like, "Well, this piece of junk, whatever." And then Jim stands up for the car, and then Herbie follows Jim home. Yeah, the, the, the meeting between Jim and Herbie is yeah. the thing that is going to change both of their lives, where life is being used to carry a lot of weight here. It's doing a lot of heavy lifting, but both of their lives forever. And I want to point out that this movie does something very funny at the inciting incident, because Jim meets Carol and Herbie within moments of each other. Mm-hmm. And it plays with the idea that maybe the inciting incident is going to be boy meets girl, right? That is a standard, that's a standard inciting incident for, for most movies up until this time. The thing that turns the guy's life around is the girl that makes him improve himself. Right. But in fact, in that moment where where he's like, wow. Get a look at that. And Carol is like, oh, well, Mr. Uh, Mr. Douglas. But he's not looking at her. He's looking at a car. Right. 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 Um, and, and not Herbie, by the way. He's he's fantasizing about a, a sleeker other car. Uh, but but it's fun. She's not the inciting incident of the movie. Herbie is. That's the right. most important relationship of this movie is the one between Jim and Herbie. Right. Right. And Carol, Carol and Jim's relationship is is a subplot. Right. right. So we get through uh, the rising action. Mm-hmm. Uh, boy meets car. <laughs> car follows boy home. <laughs> uh, boy decides to give car a try uh, and finds that he starts winning on the in the races. Right. He starts doing really well, uh, despite the fact that this is not a car that physically he respects. Uh but but he's you know he's aware that the mm-hmm. car is quirky and seems to have a mind of its own to some degree. But but he he labels this as engineering flaws. Uh, that there's just something a little wrong in the design. Needs nothing a tweak. He, right right. Nothing he can't handle. Although it is obvious to us and to Tennessee that what's actually going on is Herbie is a sentient car with feelings and emotions and a personality, and that's what makes Herbie special. Uh, So uh, Jim gets into race after race after race. And what's interesting to me is I watched this without paying attention to the clock. I thought that the climax was happening 
And then the movie went another hour. I feel like this may be a movie that has two climaxes. Maybe three. <laughs> Maybe three. Um, and so, I, if you don't mind, I would like to label the first time I, th I thought I saw a climax, and if you had one before that or after that. Sure, sure. So there comes a point in the movie where Thorndike, who is the villain of the movie, who sold the car to Jim, but then realizes that there's something special about Herbie and wants it back, makes a deal with Jim so that... Uh, he can get the car back. He offers Jim a much better car, mm -hmm. physically. Uh, and Jim, because he thinks the car is just the car, and he attributes his comeback not to Herbie, but to his own skill as a driver, takes that deal. Tennessee is upset with him, and Carol is upset with him for making this decision. And, of course, Herbie is upset with him. And what happens in these scenes uh, is... What Once Jim makes the sale, he sees Herbie start ramming the new car without a driver, mm, right. attacking it. It is essentially Jim and Herbie break up. Uh, and Herbie leaves Jim, abandons Jim, uh, goes driving out, and Jim goes chasing after him. Mm -hmm. And for me, this felt like a climax. This is what we've been waiting to see. Jim has been in denial that Herbie is alive. And now is forced to reckon with the fact that this car that he has treated badly is special and hurting, and it's all his fault. Mm -hmm. And for me, this was a big emotional climax here. And I need to say this, listener, because I, I need you to know where my head is at. It is an emotional part of the movie, and yet it is also, to me, hysterical. I don't find... Suicide funny. Suicide is a tragedy. I do not like suicide jokes. But when Herbie tries to throw himself off the Golden Gate Bridge, I don't know. It Human suicide, not funny. Vehicular suicide, where the vehicle is committing suicide. To me, to me, I was giggling. And I don't know if that realizes something dark within me. Uh, but but that for me felt like the climax. Herbie is going to quote unquote destroy himself, and Jim is trying to talk him down from the ledge. I, and if this sounds dark, if you see it in the movie, visually it is portrayed in a humorous fashion. Right. right. Uh, Andy, am I a monster for finding this scene funny? You I don't think I don't think you're a monster. I just think a six year old might feel differently. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it plays with that trope of people jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, that's kind of a thing, right? And so... But just seeing this folks yeah. teetering on the edge, edge, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's pretty great. I think the first climax that I felt, um, and again, I think it's important to note that this movie is made, like, like really most of the movies um, that we've watched in this period, uh, to double for The Wonderful World of Disney should right. that release not be successful, right? So they're going to get some money. They're going to make money on it one way or the other. Um, the structure feels episodic in that yes. way. And so that that might be why we have these kind of three separate um, climax or feeling climaxes, right? The first time he races Thorndike almost feels like a climax. Sure. But then, but then Jim, Jim, we think maybe Jim learned something, but he didn't learn anything. Um, and that second time he goes out for Herbie and this time Herbie, he and Herbie are together, you know, in that Jim slips, he dangles, he's nearly lost trying to save Herbie. 
And Herbie says, no, I'm going to save Jim and, and maybe we're going to give it another shot. So, y- you know, it's, um, but I think, yeah, I think that third climax uh, is really the end of the, the El Dorado race. And Thorndike really sums it up. He says, it's either us or it this time. Right. Right. Yeah, because that second climax at the Golden Gate Bridge, then, then I'm like, oh, this is, this is wrapping up. Uh, but no, there's another hour to the movie. Right, because Thorndike has to be defeated. Right. And so they come together in that moment, and that feels like a climax, because right. I don't think they were ever as far apart from each other as they were in the scene before that. But right. the actual, like, and usually, which whatever is the last climax is the real climax. That isn't always true, but it's true in, I think, this movie, is that final race in, in El Dorado, where the stakes... Uh, where the stakes are, you know, if Herbie wins the race, uh, everything is going to be good. Right. And if Herbie loses the race, Herbie is going to be destroyed. Jim's career is going to be destroyed. Mr. Wu's uh, going to lose on, on this, too. Uh, everything is riding on this one race. Right. Uh, the, and stakes, when, the stakes are just higher than they've ever been. So we have an emotional climax, I think, an hour into the movie, and then we have, like, the action climax an hour later. Uh, And I would not want those things to be as separate as they are Mm -hmm. uh, in a modern screenplay, but this is 1969. And And it works. I mean, the movie works as as it works. I'm not not arguing the point. Um, It's just not what we would do today. Right, right. And then we get a little bit of falling action, right? Right. Uh, after Herbie has won the race, we see that uh, Thorndike has inadvertently hoisted by his own petard. Uh, we know that Mr. Thorndike um, invented this hard-to-read print on contracts, uh, but he made a bet with Mr. Wu, and Mr. Wu had some hard-to-read print on there, and. For whatever reason, Thorndike has lost his entire business on this bet and, in fact, is forced to work as a mechanic in a store that he used to own and run working for Mr. Wu. Yeah. And that's, apparently Haversha got, got uh, looped into that deal as well. Yeah, uh, apparently it is quite that must have been a lot of fine print, but it's fine. <laughs> they deserve it. Right. Right. Uh, and we see that our heroes um uh, Jim and Carol have gotten married, and they're going off on their honeymoon. Uh, Tennessee says, where are you guys going? And the response is, we don't know. Herbie hasn't told us yet. <laughs> the two of them are in the back seat of Herbie, as mm-hmm. Herbie, without someone in the driver's seat, drives off, and that is our happy ending. Yeah, Jim completely trusts Herbie at that point. Yeah, they're, they're and, partners. And, and, their fam- and their family, right? And if you take a look at this movie as a love triangle, and I think that it is, the mm-hmm. love triangle has been resolved in the sense that they are a three-person family now. Right, right. Um, which which is, is the happiest of endings you can get for a love triangle. Right on, right on. No one's hurt. It's good. Let's talk about some of these characters. Um, we have Jim Douglas, played by Dean Jones. Such a yes. great protagonist. Um you know, I, I think uh, lesser actors would have really bu- could have really made this script really terrible. How hard must it be to have your scene partner be a car? And I said this to mm-hmm. Andy in pre-production. At least if you're doing that darn cat, 
and you're talking to an animal. Right. I imagine that is in some respects easier because you're connecting with something that has a I mean, I, I believe animals have souls. Um and but but something that certainly has an animated intelligence right. uh, behind it and can give you something. Uh and uh, this car can't give you anything as you're doing a scene with it. Mm-hmm. But I I believe it when I'm watching the movie in the same way I believe that Kermit is real. I believe that Herbie is real. Right. And I, right. that's all about the the lead actor's performances here that that they actually do talk to Herbie and have a relationship with them. And you know, I think that's magic. I and I think you're right with a different casting choice this movie is dead. Same exact script. But if you can't connect to the car as a character, you're done. Yeah, I mean, Jim Jim loves cars. And I think Dean genuinely loves cars, if you hear him talk. So he knows a lot about... I think he was the perfect casting choice here. Um, he, You know, Jim is arrogant. He's ambitious. He's aging. Uh, he's a self-serving driver. And her, that Herbie's going to change. Uh, he still has these these really big dreams, dreams right? But he's more... Um, I think he, I think it's safe to say that he's more opportunistic than driven. Um, I, I think that's fair. Yeah. And, 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 you know, at first, of course, Jim doesn't see Herbie as an asset. Uh, but then when Herbie beats those kids in a drag race, he's all in. He sees the potential. Right. 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 Here is the funniest thing about Jim. And it's, and it's almost like, it's not parody, but it, but it is sort of like in conversation with all of the other movies of this type is generally speaking, you have a a character who believes themselves to be special and then realizes that the thing that makes them special is not their raw ability, but something deep down inside, right? Right, And in fact, is more special than they ever believed. Right. Here is the funny part about Jim. Jim believes himself to be a talented driver. Mm -hmm. And Andy, I never know if that's true. Because, because in fact, what's special about the Jim and Herbie team, you know, Jim is always like, it's the driver, not the car. It's the driver, not the car. I think you're mistaking which one of us is special. In fact, Jim is not a special driver. Herbie is a special car. I think anyone driving Herbie wins this race. Um, And Jim's journey is to realize how insignificant and not special he is. Right. Right. He has to get the wind knocked out of him in order to really, uh, really understand who, you know. What's... But I don't know that he ever gets built back up. He's never going to yeah. drive another car. He's a one man. He's a one car man for the rest of his life. That car will always be Herbie. We will never get the vindication of what can Dean Jones do as a driver without Herbie. Well, I, you know, there's that realization with that scene with Michelle Lee where he says, you know, there's something real about that little car, something that doesn't even have a name. What I don't understand is why it picked a dog-eared second rater like me. And Michelle yes. Lee says, at kind of in the Obi-Wan moment, right? You stood up for it once. I guess it thought you were worth belonging to. Sure. And that moment, I think it's like, oh, that's my that's my gift here. My gift is standing up for the people that I care about or the things that I care or the entities that I care about. Um, whether it's you, whether it's Herbie, whether it's Tennessee, like that's my, that's my gift. I, 
I feel like the movie could make a little bit more of a meal of it. And here's mm-hmm. the place. Here's the place where I want it. There's a part of this movie where Herbie is sick because Thorndike has uh, spiked spiked the gas tank full of whipped cream, right? right? And Herbie is sick. And what I want is a scene where uh, Jim Douglas is with Herbie and Herbie is sick. And because this is Dean Jones in a private moment, he sings to the car to make it feel better. <laughs> I think that I, would be pretty sweet. It would be organic to this movie and it would be making the most of Dean Jones's talents. I was waiting yeah. for this scene, but but I think a love song is called for here. This is a romance between a man and his car. I want to see a little wooing. Ah, cool. I Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I think when the car, I think the interesting part about Jim, you know, Jim makes a wager uh, about Herbie. And then when the car's wagered out from under him, I think that watching those two, that shift in his character, um, he's not willing to win at all costs anymore. And in the Eldorado race, he doesn't race solo. He races with his friends, right? He races with Carol and with Tennessee and with Herbie, right? They're all together as a team, even though that's really, I mean, that's not the ideal. I mean, you're adding a lot of weight to the car. And I mean, that's like, but Herbie can handle it. Herbie's going to be able to manage He's going to, and Jim does use his old demolition driving skills to catch up to Thorndike because he's crossing across thing. So he does, he does add something to it, uh, but they're better together than separate. Okay. Right? I will concede this point. I okay. will concede it. You've made the case. All right. Sh- shall we go on to talk about let's, Herbie? Let's talk about Herbie who stars as himself. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A little egotistical to do that, but fine. That's fine. Uh, what, you know. what do you think? What do you think about Herbie? Um, so, so what do I think about Herbie? I think I don't get a sense of exactly who Herbie is because he doesn't have a lot of nonverbal communication to emote with, right? Right. Uh, but, but my interpretation of Herbie, and maybe I'm wrong, is that Herbie is a child and not an adult. Yeah, I, I think he's somewhere between like a car and a collie and an adolescent. Well, I mean, so like boy in his car and boy in his dog are tropes. Right. But but I think that her, I, I I read Herbie as a little kid who wants who wants a big brother. And he mm. and but I, I also recognize that's my interpretation of it. If if you look at this and look at it as a, a boy and his dog or or possibly as a boy in his romantic interest, uh you know, not not sexually romantic, but, you know, romantic in the classical sense of romance. Right. Uh, I, I think those interpretations also work. But I think Herbie is that kid who needs to be loved, who is mm-hmm. desperate for the approval of a, of a person who will love love him. Right. And what's going on in that middle scene is if it didn't work out with Jim, it's not going to work out with anyone Right. Herbie's at this place where he feels he will never find love. Uh, but once once Jim proves that he really does love Herbie, there's nothing Herbie won't do for Jim. Right. Yeah, it, it just it, it, it occurs to me there's a scene where Jim's taking he starts to take Herbie home the first time and he takes him on the freeway and Herbie gets scared of the freeway. But he's not afraid to race when he's with Jim. Right. Right. But he's afraid of the freeway at first. 
So yeah, I think that works. I think, um, I think he plans a relationship with Jim and Carol. I think he likes Carol. I think Carol's been probably nice to him. Um, I, he takes direction from Tennessee because they have a relationship because Tennessee sees who he is. He's jealous of other cars. He's protective of Jim to the point where he resurrects himself once he's dead. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, The thing I love about this movie is when something's going on in Herbie's mind, we see this shot of the front headlights and the license plate, right? What what other choice do we have in the movie to see what's going on in his head? Um, But but that's what we get. And I think it's kind of fun. Like, oh, Herbie's cooking up something. This movie lives or dies on whether it can convince the audience that Herbie is a character. Yeah. And I have to say... This movie is magic because it does. Yeah. It does. I'm watching scenes and I'm thinking, what is Herbie feeling right now (laughs) as I'm as I'm watching it? And and of course, intellectually, I know that Herbie is just a prop. But to me, when I'm watching it, my disbelief is suspended. I believe it. Herbie's a full character. Well, and I think your your uh, analogy to the Muppets, uh, your comparison there is is really accurate because I never once go, "Gosh, is Kermit just a puppet?" I never think that. Never. Right when I'm watching the the Muppets, and I think that about Herbie, I think, "Oh, Herbie's got a mind of his own." Wait, wait. He's he's not like the other cars. Kermit's a pup. Puppet? We get, we should move on. Okay. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, about to cry. What? Uh, yeah, we, we should we should definitely move on. Uh, so uh, Carol Bennett, played by the incredible Michelle Lee. Uh, yes. Who is great. What do we think uh, about her? What do I think about her? Um, by 1969 standards, I think she is one of the best female characters we've seen in mm-hmm. these movies. Um, you know, my, my first impression was, man... I would like to see, you know, I I don't love the fact that she's kind of forced to date her boss a little Mm -hmm. bit at the beginning of this movie. And it made me feel like she was oppressed. Uh, And and probably she was because all women were. But by by 1969 standards, she speaks her mind. She stands up to authority. She has Mm -hmm. integrity. uh, She. She loves I mean, cars, which is not uh, something that women in 1969 do. No, she loves cars. She's got the grease on her fingers, right? Yeah, and, she, and like, she's got and she's got the the drag racing and all the racing magazines memorized, right? She knows Jim by his reputation as a race car driver, and can right. and like like she's she inc- knows his stats, right? She's she an incredibly yeah. modern woman by yeah. 1969 standards, um, and. And what what else is she doesn't really look when she feels rejected, she doesn't get sad and cry on the bed. She gets pissed and she verbalizes how angry she is. Mm -hmm. She does not stand up. She does not stand by when she is mistreated or when she sees somebody else mistreated. Right. And I have to tell you. It would be so easy for the female character in this movie to be in the background when because the primary relationship is between Jim and Herbie. She's mm. she's she's in the second spot. We're not really here for the romance. And yet I respected the 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 acting, the writing, uh the portrayal of this character throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. I do too. I, I she stands up to Thorndike. She stands up to Jim. 
repeatedly. repeatedly, and she sees the man Jim really is beneath the bluster. Uh, she's she able, has, she, Carol is able to cut through and get to the meat of whatever's going on in the scene. She's capable great. of saying no yep. and giving consent. She yep. is autonomous. Uh, I knows her own worth. My yep. God, she knows her own worth, Andy. In like, 1969, that's huge. It's so huge. It's such a, and she's such a, I mean, she's so, she's beautiful. And I think she's even more beautiful because of, of her, um, you know, her agency. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, having come off of, you know, my worst experience on this podcast has always been Freaky Friday, right. uh, where, where after that I watched, am I always going to see women feel this way, right. feel subservient to men in all spaces in these early movies? It was so refreshing to see, to see one uh, with agency and independence. Right. And, and Carol is the one who says to Jim that she wants to be with him first. Yes. Right. Yeah. She goes after pretty, what she wants. That's right. That's right. And then she says, but maybe I was wrong. Maybe you're not worth it. Right? <laughs> right. Here's the one button I would like to put on this. Yeah. At the end of the movie, I want her to be managing the store uh, for Mr. Wu and for Thorndike to now be her subordinate. That would be awesome. That would be great. But it's she is asking too much of 1969. <laughs> <It> is. <laughs> but but this whole time, like she's had to she's had to do what her boss has said. It would be so great to see her elevated above him and that he's now subordinate to her. Absolutely. Tennessee Stein Metz, played by the incomparable Buddy Hackett. I am a huge Buddy Hackett fan. I think he's irreverent. And when I I didn't know anything about Buddy Hackett before when I watched this movie when I was six. And then I saw him later in The Music Man. And then as I got older, I watched his old, all of his stuff on The Tonight Show. And he's just an incredible comedian. So funny. So, so funny. And loves the stage and loves performing. And you can see it in this picture. I know better than to pick a fight with you about Buddy Hackett. Andy. <laughs> and so I am not going to. But what I will... You are... You would listen to my on... On recording murder, if I did that, <laughs> even though this we're would in two become a true states, crime right? podcast where you were all witnesses, <laughs> right? But right. What I what I will say, and I I hope you'll agree with me. He's a little oddly positioned in this movie. In a mm-hmm. normal movie, I think he's just the comic relief. But in this movie, I think he's less the comic relief. Although he does do comic stuff and and what have you, right. but he's more the shaman. And spiritual yes. center of this movie, which is not something I would normally, it's not a role I would normally assign to him. Right. Is that I fair? mean, I, no, it's totally fair. He's the philosopher guru, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, but he also does things like he names the car after his uncle Herb. He's literally the worst pit crew member ever. He fills the tank with Herbie and then he walks in front of the car instead of stepping to the side to give the, you know, give the car extra room. You know, he's, uh, he, but, but her, but Tennessee uh, is the character that really gives us the vision into Herbie's soul. Yes. Because without Tennessee voicing what's going on, it would be a much less interesting movie. And the fact that, uh, you know, he's named him after his uncle Herb. He's, uh, you know, he <laughs> moment when he says, I thought I was happy painting flower seeds. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what 
what are you talking about? Painting flower seeds. What does that even mean? Um, you know, so, you know, he's like, you got to make a new scene. You got to change your bag. That's when I split. I went to Tibet to a mountaintop with swamis and monks. I discovered my real self. It was wonderful. Jim, you need to discover your real self, too. And Jim does. Jim has no uh, he's not hearing any bit of that. And what? so it's so great. I mean, like all of it. And then so he he's kind of the uh, the conduit between Jim and Herbie. Yes. And not kind and of he is. Yeah. What's interesting about how he's uh, set up here is that even before he meets Herbie, he believes that there's a spirit within everything. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm accurately describing uh, pantheism when I say that I think um, think that Tennessee is a pantheist, but uh, he believes that there's that spark of the divine in all devices, right? Mm-hmm. Like he right. talks about how the, he has an antagonistic relationship with the traffic light. <laughs> He's believed this his whole time. Herbie is arguably the person... Uh, and I'll say person, I was going to amend it, I'll stick by person. Herbie is arguably the person who proves that Tennessee's way of life has always been correct. Mm -hmm. There's there's this one part where Jim is bringing home parts because he's trying to cobble together uh, a car. Right. And he comes home and he sees that Tennessee has turned it into a modern modern art sculpture. And he's like, what did you do to my car? And and Tennessee's like, it was suffering. (laughs) It was suffering. Right. This is better. This right. is better. And he he believes that there's a spark of the divine in all things, mm-hmm. and I think that comes through. And I and what I thought was particularly interesting is I think that comes through in his scene with Thorndike, mm-hmm. who is the villain of this of this movie, and who we know is not good, and who even Tennessee has known is not good. But when Thorndike makes a pretense of actually loving and respecting Herbie, uh, that that's all Tennessee needs to like, you know what, Thorndike, let's sit down and have a drink. If yeah. you can if you can show to me that you believe Herbie is alive and you can care about it and respect it, even if even though you're rivals, you're all right with me. Yeah. And then that way, because he believes that Thorndike can change, he also believes that Jim can change. Right. He believes he believes that uh, he, he just has this real sensitivity to all creatures, anima and, and inanimate. I, I always love characters who offer grace. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing about Tennessee is he does offer Thorndike that little bit of grace that we can sit down. We can be equals. Uh, we can turn this relationship around. Uh, and maybe I'm investing more more in this moment than the movie intends for me to invest in. Oh it. no, but I think no, I think I think the movie wants us to be all in with Tennessee for sure. Yeah, I I think so too. I mean, Tennessee is really he is he's the Obi Wan of this movie. Um, he is the the he knows things that uh, Jim doesn't know, and um, he's he's just really he's great. He may not be super smart, but he's wise. Yes. And he's it. actively pursued wisdom. Right. Like, like it, it is interesting to think, like, he actually went to Tibet to learn about the universe. Right. Um, and he seems like such a straight-level guy. Right. Yeah, so there's... there's the, the, the medallions and the kelp, though, kind of give him away. That's kelp. Go. It'll aerate your liver. It's good for you. <laughs> Eat that. That's good. <laughs> That's true. Our next uh, actor 
he has a rubber face. Uh, and that is David Tomlinson who plays uh, Peter Thorndike. Um, um, oh my gosh. Disney at it. David Tomlinson for me is Disney. He is Disney. He's the face of Disney for me. But I mean, for me, he's not, not in this role. Oh, uh, you don't like it. Okay. No, 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 no. I think, I think he's fine in this role, but like the, the role that like really sticks to me, I, I just kept thinking like, you know, he's got to take care of those banks children, right? Like, oh like, yeah, yeah. He's constantly reminding me about <laughs> Mary Poppins. I kept thinking like, how does he commute all the way from London to San Francisco? <laughs> Well, you know, when the car starts moving solo on its own and follow starts following the the uh, cable car, there is something Poppins esque about this movie. Um, yes, and 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 there is this sort of uh, when they go through the dark streets and he's running through the dark streets of of San Francisco uh, when Jim is. Uh, there is this kind of moment where you're like, oh yeah, that reminds me of the kids when they were coming home, you know, through the streets of London, right? Yeah. So as far as villains go, and I, I think it's fair to say he's the villain of this piece. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I think he is surprisingly articulate as as a villain, uh, has clear goals and motivations, uh, is bringing a level of complexity to his portrayal. He's capable of being charming. Yeah. Um, you know, he he is to a degree. I mean, he's insufferable, but he's also affable. At the at the same time, like you can see why uh, you can see Cruella Deville walks into a room and you're like, how does anybody fooled by Cruella Deville, right? <laughs> but you could see how people would be uh, fooled by Mr. Thorndike when we first meet him. Uh, he offers like uh, Jim Jim Douglas. He's like, oh, you you also respect cars. He's like, he he starts. He's in sales mode. And if Jim had the money, which Jim does not. I think Jim would have walked away from that interaction going, what a great guy. Yeah, absolutely. When he offers him sherry and a biscuit, and then it's like, oh, I don't think we're going to haggle about price. Oh, I wouldn't haggle. Oh, how much? $75. And he pours the sherry back into the container. Right. Like that is, that's so brilliant. You know, we know that Thorndike values money. He values status. He's not kind to anybody. When he sees Herbie coming the second time down the alley, he runs away. He's a coward. Right. And when when Herbie I don't starts, think you're a coward if you run away from a car that tried to hit you <laughs> once. I think that's common sense. I don't know. But but no, when Herbie starts winning races, he's threatened and he does what rich men do when they're threatened. Right. He competes and cheats. Yes. The, the thing that surprised me about him was the first time he got into a race car. I didn't get when I first met him that this I got that he was someone who sells cars. I didn't get that he was someone who would actually race. Ah. And part part of me wonders, you know, in a modern movie, I think you split that role up so that he's the person who wants to own the car to dissect it, to figure out what makes it special so you can reproduce it. But he probably has a second character who's the person who wins races for him. Like Havershaw, like a Havershaw character, right? Right. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I think you'd probably split that up. Every time I saw him in his in his uh, <laughs> helmet and, and driving outfit, I was like, oof. Um, so great. I yes. love it. 
I'm all I, I also love when he does win the one race when he wins it by cheating and like you know after the first couple of races there's always like this hot young thing who goes over to the winner to pose by him while they're taking pictures uh when the hot young thing walks over to Thorndike to be in the picture he's like no no one wants you in this picture they all want me move, move aside <laughs> which I think was not uh scripted I think that was a that was a, a David Tomlinson I believe moment. it. He's making so many smart choices. Yeah. And I think he brings a level of sophistication to a role that otherwise would not have it. Right. And it makes this movie about class, right? It makes it about haves and have-nots. And I think it's, I think it's great. I think no, he's I, great in this role. I, I agree. He was, I was always happy when he was on the screen. Yeah. And, yeah. and he, he, you know, the, it's, it's a lesson in comedy. The jokes land because he has dignity. Like we don't we, we don't laugh when we punch when we punch down. Like you see you right. see someone who's a clown and something bad happens to the clown. You'll never laugh as hard as the person who's trying to maintain his dignity in right. the middle of being humiliated. Right. Uh, and consistently throughout this movie, you see him trying to rise up against the fact that he has been utterly embarrassed. Herbie pees on him. Pees oil on him, <laughs> listener. Uh, three least, times, right? But it's clearly urination. <laughs> right. uh, three times in this movie. Uh, mud in his face. Uh, at one point, stuffs him into the glove compartment of the car. <laughs> There's and, a bear after him. Right? And, and it's, <laughs> so, uh, it's so funny because yeah. he's so indignant at the humiliation he's, he's undergoing. Right. Right, right. I thought about something, too. Um, there's a moment where, you know, he's supposed to be having dinner with Michelle Lee. And, of course, Herbie decides to thwart that and takes uh, Jim and Carol to the hamburger stand instead. And there's this one shot where Thorndike is just kind of like, oh, well, I'm having my lunch and he or, you know, my dinner and my the back of my car. And he checks his watch and he doesn't go after Mich Michelle Lee. He just sort of like expects her to be there. And like, oh, I can't believe she's not here. Why would she turn me down? You know, there's this kind of, and, and there's no words exchanged, but it's just that little moment where it's like, oh, he doesn't deserve her. He, I, he doesn't deserve anything. I want to make, I want to make one last point about him and then, then sure. I'll, I'll concede. But what makes him a villain rather than an antagonist, I, and I have a longstanding feeling about this. An antagonist is in the way of the protagonist and tries to thwart their dreams. But a villain is someone who knowingly does wrong, right? So you can be an antagonist and not be a villain. He is a villain mm -hmm. because he believes Herbie to be alive. He comes around to the conclusion that no, Herbie can feel emotions, uh, is is his is real, is alive, is sentient, and still wants to destroy him. Murder He'd him, be yeah. an antagonist if he always thought Herbie was a car. We'd be like, well, he just, he's not open to it. He'll never realize how special Herbie is. But in fact, at the end of the movie, he's like, if you thought you were a compact car before, my friend, wait until I crush you. He right. knows Herbie is alive. He wants revenge. He wants yep. to murder this car. Yep. And that's what makes him a villain. And we watch him descend into villainy. As the movie progresses, right. uh, he starts crossing. He's not a man of honor. He no. pretends to be, but he continually crosses lines more and more uh, and towards his own damnation. He deserves the comeuppance he gets at the end of this movie. He's abused his power and he should be stripped of power. Yep. Yep. 
So I want to launch into something here that um, I've been thinking about lately. Um, and I want to talk about obstacles and I want to talk about complications. Um, I, I've been reading um, and really kind of been thinking a lot about the work of David Siegel here. Um, I think his ideas about uh, nine act structure are, are, are definitely, certainly they're resonating with me right now. Um, Siegel makes the distinction between an obstacle in a film and a complication as a, so when you're writing and thinking about your structure and how you get your protagonist from point A to point B, um, it, these kind of things are, are important. So Siegel defines an obstacle as something directly in the hero's path of obtaining their ultimate goal. So you can add or remove an obstacle and not change the story at all. Right. And obstacles are there to help writers build a character but they're definitely issues that get in the way of the hero getting what they want. So for example, when uh, Thorndike puts uh, Irish coffee in Herbie's gas tank, that's an obstacle. It's, it doesn't really change Jim, what happens with Jim, but it definitely is an obstacle that keeps Jim from winning a race, right? Which is what he wants to do. Um, so sometimes when we watch a movie, we might think, Oh, that was just too easy. The, the protagonist just put something out there and it just happened. Uh, not only is that just sort of implausible, it might be boring because we want more conflict. We want struggle. We want that boulder in the road. Um, and, and so this movie is kind of rife with obstacles. And I wonder if maybe we could talk about that. The distinction between, uh, maybe I should talk about the, the distinction between that and a, and a complication. Do so, you want me to, to make like yeah, a little yeah, bit of a... Yeah, so, yeah. So I'm going to use Wizard of Oz, which is my go-to movie, because I think everybody's, almost everybody's seen it. And if you're sure. listening to this podcast, come on, you've seen it. Um, but <laughs> and if not, rectify that right now. <laughs> I, I think what we would say here is an obstacle is when Dorothy and the lion fall asleep in the bed of poppies. Right. It's slowing them down on their journey. It's something they have to overcome. But once it's dispo it once it's disposed of, we never refer to it again. It's a right. it's a moment in the movie. It's not the movie. You could easily replace it with a bunch of other sequences. It could be anything that slows them down from getting to the Emerald City. The point is the journey has been slowed. Whereas right. the confrontation with the witch is the movie. Mm -hmm. And and the fact that the witch is between them and getting home, that Dorothy's been captured, is a complication. It has to happen. She has to get this witch off her back because the witch has been chasing her all across Oz. Mm -hmm. uh, and and is something you will never forget about the movie when you watch right. it. Would right. you say that's a fair? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a struggle, right? There's those like definitely kind of gets in the way. But it re those moments reveal more about Dorothy and the lion than they do about Dorothy's choice. To, I mean, it doesn't change her objective right. in the it's, film. It's, right. it's a an obstacle is something temporary. Right. Uh, it's the rake you step on. It hits you in the face. Uh, yeah. But then and you like walk it, away. Yeah. And like I said, you can play with those. You can add those. You can take those out. Oh, this would be a better obstacle. Oh, that would be a better obstacle because the goal of using an obstacle is trying to figure out, it's trying to show more about this person's character. What yeah. will Jim, what will Jim Douglas do when this happens? What would, what will Carol do? What will Tennessee do? Um, when Jim buys a Lamborghini and Herbie attacks it, right? That's sort of an obstacle. It doesn't have to be a Lamborghini, 
could be uh could be something but we something have to... has to happen to tear them apart that's the right. obstacle the complication is yes. they've been torn apart and that scene has to happen right and right. can't be replaced right it's a movie right i mean so the complication a complication takes a character then in a new direction while still in pursuit of his goal so jim douglas starts this movie by thinking he wants to be an important race car driver. He wants to regain whatever status he thought he had, that he's only half a man without a real car. And what complicates that is Herbie. He doesn't think Herbie's a real car. And he has this, Herbie has his own mind and wants something more for Jim than Jim allows himself to have, right? So Jim drives really hard to prove he's the driver who has what it takes. But then there's this moment where Jim has to come to grips that he isn't the one driving the car. The car is driving him. And, mm -hmm. that's the, and that is the complication, right? So after Jim has this, so Herbie attacks the Lamborghini, that's our obstacle. But Jim has this realization because he says, it's always been jealous because I get credit for winning those races. And Tennessee says, can you listen to yourself there? Can you? <laughs> that's right. That's Do you hear right. yourself there, Jim? You what you're saying? <laughs> that's right. And then Jim's not willing to sell Herbie anymore. In fact, in fact, there is a part we, we get like a parallel resonance of this later on in the movie. Mm -hmm. There's a bit where uh, Thorndike has won the first part of the late of the race. Herbie is in terrible condition. And basically, uh, Jim says, I don't want to go to the second part of the race. Herbie gave it everything he's got. I don't want to see any more damage happen to Herbie. Right. He's now valuing Herbie's continued safety over his career as a race car driver and winning the race, his pride. He's, he's like, let Herbie, you don't have to do this anymore. It's okay to give up. What's more important is that you're okay. Right. And that's such that's such 180 degrees from where he was just 45 minutes earlier in the movie. Right, right. Where he was willing to sacrifice Herbie for his own ambition. Now he's sacrificing his ambition for Herbie. And it isn't until he realizes that if he loses the race, Thorndike will get Herbie and destroy Herbie. Right. That they say, well, no, we've got to continue on because, because it's for Herbie. Now we're racing for Herbie's life. Right, right. And now and, it's and, worth it. Now it's worth the risk. The goal becomes about saving Herbie and not about saving himself, right? And, and you know, complications and obstacles both have places in this movie. And, and it's not like obstacles are bad. The entire race sequence at the end of the race. Oh, El Dorado is rife with, rife with obstacles, right? It could be any series of set pieces, right. comic set pieces to make that race. Mm -hmm. They're all obstacles. The complication is they need to win the race. Right. 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 You need both. You need both. You need the little moments of obstacles and the larger complication that strings the obstacles together and gives them meaning. I'm going to talk about themes real quick. Um. So, I mean, Andy, I haven't said it in a while, <laughs> but this movie's about <laughs> redemptive love. I wanted you to say that. <laughs> but it is. It is. It, it totally it, is. It is about it is about what what Jim's lesson is is the thing that Herbie has always known is when you love someone you're willing to make sacrifices for them. You sacrifice your needs for their needs. And that's it happens to a degree. 
between Jim and Carol, but this is not their story. Where this no. really happens for the most part is between Jim and Herbie. The mm-hmm. two of them learn that by sacrificing what they want for each other, they are able to experience true love. And I'm fond of saying, you know, Jim and Carol may be romantically linked, right? but Jim and Herbie are soulmates. Right, right. They complete each other. Right, I think, and I think finding yourself in this movie is a theme that's constant. Tennessee brings it up. Um, you know, who are you at your core? Uh, doing the right thing and never giving up because and, and and Herbie is and and also sacrifice. You know, Jim Jim is willing to sacrifice himself for Herbie, and and uh, in the scene where he isn't at first, and then later uh, Herbie sacrifices himself to save Jim from Thorndike, right? I also think this movie is championing Tennessee's philosophy that there's mm-hmm. the spark of divine in everything. Yes. Um, and it's a very you know, Quaker when, film, right? <laughs> I, but I think I think it is. I think there's yeah. this idea that when you see someone like abusing something that isn't alive, right? Like you see someone like smashing uh, a TV set or or breaking something or throwing something and it shatters mm-hmm. that like it's hurting it it's you may not be hurting a living creature but it's you're hurting the you're lashing out at the universe you're hurting the universe yeah you're sending that negativity out there and you're hurting yourself that's right um, and that and that to truly be happy you have to love not just everyone but everything about the universe well and not and like a lesson Thor- that i have internalized <laughs> but intellectually I can recognize as that's the spiritual fare this movie is offering us. Right. And I think it's interesting that Mr. Wu doesn't throw Thorndike out on his ear completely. He does give him a job. It may not be yep. the job he wants, but it is a job, right? Look, he you know, have- he, he is a stereotype of giving Eastern mysticism to, to Western characters to a right. degree. Right. Uh, but, but he is always talking about how, like, you have to trust the universe in terms of taking risks and the universe will, you know, you have to trust that the universe will, will, you know, even the odds when you deserve it to be evened. Uh, he, there is a philosophy that that this universe bends towards moral goodness, right? Mm-hmm. Like, just, mm-hmm. and and you just go with the flow to a degree. Right, right. All right, pitch time. So given this film and the three sequels, uh, Herbie Rides Again, Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo, and Herbie Goes Bananas, as well as a remake of uh, The Love Bug in 1997, and the sequel, Herbie Fully Loaded in 2005, what do we do with this material? All right, so I'm going to save some of my pitches because we're going to do future Herbie movies. Um, But there's a lot you can do with this. But I'm going to do the pitch that is specific to this movie. Okay. My favorite part of this movie that I have gone back, watched again and again, viewer, (laughs) is there is a scene where our villain is driving the car. There's mud on his eyes. And he doesn't realize that a black bear has gotten into the passenger seat with him. And there is this whole extended sequence of he's like, wipe off my goggles. And the bear reaches over and wipes off his goggles. And he hands the bear the map, not knowing it's a map. But then the funniest moment, you have to watch the sequence, but I'm spoiling it. The funniest moment is when when Peter Thorndike turns uh, and sees that there's a bear in the car next to him passes out in fear, but with his foot on the accelerator, keeps driving. And there's a moment where the bear is like, 
oh crap, what do I do now? Because the car's still going and you see the bear's in a little bit of a panic and the bear tries to wake Thorndike so that Thorndike can drive the car. It is, it is the funniest thing I've seen in a while. It's such a gift. So my pitch, Andy, is I want a movie about that bear. Ah. So, so the this movie, the inciting incident is this bear has this incident in which he's in a car and the car goes out of control and he escapes it with his life. But he's been bitten by the driving bug. Ah. Ah. This is this. The bear has fallen in love with automobiles, with speed, with racing. I want this to be like an Air Bud movie where someone's like, hey, there's no rule in the rule book against saying that a bear drives this car in the derby. Um, I, I want I want this bear to like go to the DMV and get his license. I want I want scenes of him like taking his driving test. I want I want him racing and I want him to win. That's my movie. I love that movie. I would watch that movie. Um, so I like the idea of sentient cars. And um, in in Herbie Fully Loaded, Herbie falls in love with a Volkswagen New Beetle. Um, and and I started thinking about that a little bit. And I, I was kicking this around for quite a while. But I think with the advent of self-driving cars like we have now, I think it could make Herbie's storyline kind of even more delicious. So what if Herbie meets other cars? And they all decide together as a collective to save the environment. They decide to boycott gasoline. They become solar powered. They go to the ocean and they shut down oil wells. They they boycott. They they make get their humans to walk right. Um, but we're going to need a good protagonist um, that's human. And I think we get a wasteful capitalist who maybe doesn't care about the environment, who only thinks about himself. Like maybe it's the grandson of um, like Peter Thorndike or um, oh Alonzo Hawk. And, and maybe he uh, treats cars like throwaway items until one car really gets under his skin and changes him in much the same way that the original Herbie changes Jim. Andy, this is yes. Planet of the Apes. I know. Cars. Right? <laughs> I know. And, and it posits that the Cars movie, yeah. car, Pixar's Cars movie, is the result of that revolution. Yeah, that that like there may be a statue of Herbie somewhere in Radiator Springs because he led the revolution that overthrew man and cars now rule the earth. Right. Holy cow. Andy. I think we need something in between. I'm glad you mentioned cars because I think we need something in between the Herbie movies and cars movies to kind of show how we get from point eight from there to there. So Herbie maybe a prequel for car. There you go. There it is. Yeah. Uh, Herbie missing ac- mixing Axel, uh, yeah. <laughs> something. But I, you know, I think there. I think that um, children, I think, really are interested in, you know, caring about the planet and caring about the Earth and wondering about cars. And I think there's a whole lot of discussion that we could have about all of that, and it could be fun. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, what movie are we tackling next week, Larry? <laughs> laughing because i already know the answer because i know well you, you always know the answer and we pretend I that always you know don't the, oh, i know andy i'm scared <laughs> i'm scared of the movie work i have and not I watched can't it stop yet laughing 
instinctually I'm scared about it. We are watching Xenon, Girl of the 21st Century, yeah, which is are. a 1999 Disney Channel original movie, <laughs> and it is available on Disney+. Plus. Yes. Andy, have you started this yet? How scared uh, should I be? So... It, okay, so it kind of has a damning pause. <laughs> so it's it is not the love bug, okay, and mm-hmm. but it's not Freaky Friday, <laughs> okay, okay. But like you liked Punky Brewster, right? As a kid, sure. I and you Punky like power. Uh, you like the what was the? I keep forgetting the name of the show with Screech. Um, uh, Saved the, by the Saved Bell. by the Bell. You like Saved by the Bell? So it kind, kind of, of ironically, kinda, I, so don't, kinda, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I mean, I like, if it my, was uh, on, you would watch it, right? When you were a when kid, I, if it was on, you would watch it. When I was it. a kid and there were only four channels, yes, I would watch Saved by the Bell. Right, right. So I think it's kind of in there somewhere. Um, oh, and, God. But the, the dialogue is not exactly crisp. <laughs> I, I, and, and the writing is not exact. But this is kind of good because I think it's important that we talk about how not to write. And oh, maybe Lord. there's some things that we can talk about and point out and be like, eh. This maybe not. This maybe didn't hit it out of the park. Listener, there's a reason. Beware. <laughs> there's there are sequels to this, so apparently it was a thing. I haven't really dug into the research yet to find out what the the market share on Xenon was, but uh, yeah. If if you are one of the listeners who watches the movies with us in prep for the next week's podcast, yes, I will write you a note excusing you from this assignment. <laughs> You should watch. You should. If we have to, Andy's do it, you not. Have to do Andy's it too. not accepting my note. So, no. So. So. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. All right. Well, if you like what you're hearing, or you don't like what you're hearing, do us a favor and share this podcast with another Disney or classic movie fan. And please, please, please check out our Once Upon a Disney Facebook page. You can tweet us at, at Andy Redwine or at Larry Brenner Six, or drop us a line in our mailbag at Once Upon a Disney Podcast at gmail.com. So until next time, friends, see you real soon. See you real soon.